Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Some circumstances relating to the present condition of the Indians may need be proper to notice. Those belonging to this settlement continue to manifest a disposition to improve in domestic arrangements. Considerable crops of corn have been reaped last summer, but owing to the early frosts, several fields have been entirely cut off. And corn generally throughout the country has been very much injured. This circumstance has excited much alarm among the Indians, and in consequence the greater part of them are preparing for a lean spring, with a view to save the little stock of corn that is left for summer. Some families will inevitably be very destitute, and whether the committee should think proper to have some grain produced to assist their necessities is now suggested for their consideration. Jacob Taylor, Quaker Missionary, November 15, 1816 Two hundred years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies, and mysteries. It was a time when our modern world began to emerge. And a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at secondDecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, all one word, two D's in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 47, The Year Without Summer, Part 3 On October 10, 1816, a notice appeared in newspapers across New Hampshire, an official proclamation of the governor, William Plummer. In this small notice, he declared Thursday, the 14th of November, would be the official Thanksgiving observed throughout the state. Although Thanksgiving has been embedded in the American tradition since the time of the Pilgrims, the holiday did not become institutionalized, celebrated across the whole country on the same day, the fourth Thursday in November. That didn't happen until the 20th century. Prior to that, Thanksgivings were proclaimed more or less ad hoc, though usually a Thursday and usually in mid or late November at both the state and federal levels. The authorities who proclaimed them usually issued an official notice and drew the public's attention to recent events or conditions for which they should particularly give thanks. For example, President Abraham Lincoln's proclamation of 1863 refers to recent military victories in the Civil War and obliquely refers to the emancipation of the slaves. Governor Plummer's 1816 Thanksgiving proclamation, however, is pretty unusual. A passage in it reads, quote, but while we celebrate the praises of the Most High for the public and private blessings we have enjoyed, let us not be unmindful 
that in the course of the present year, the Earth has not yielded her usual supply for our returning wants, and that it is our duty, when God's judgments are in the Earth, to humble ourselves for our transgressions, and to practice that righteousness which exalts and renders a nation prosperous." End quote. We have some accounts of what Thanksgiving dinners were like in this part of the country at around this time. Sarah Smith Emery, who I quoted in a previous installment in this series, wrote about Thanksgiving food in her expansive memoir, which covered almost the entire 19th century. She mentions long golden ears of Indian corn, which the women shucked on the barn floor by the light of the harvest moon, and there was cider applesauce and preserves of pears and quinces, cider was also made from these. Turkey was the main course, and plum pudding, gravy is mentioned, and fresh cheese for the milk of the cows in the barn. Sarah Emery was writing about her childhood, and she was born in 1787, so this dates from perhaps the mid-1790s, but the traditional fare wouldn't have changed much by the second decade. How much has Thanksgiving dinner changed in your lifetime? But for many people, Thanksgiving of 1816, the year without summer, was different. Harvests were generally poor. A couple of places in the United States reported bumper crops, especially in the South, but for most people whose corn or wheat had been damaged by frost, the barns were distressingly light on provisions. The vast majority of people in America in 1816 and around the world made their living by farming. A wet, cold summer and a bad harvest wasn't just an anomaly, something that happened and then passed. It was a matter of grave importance, being able to make it through the winter. I mention this to underscore that the climate anomalies of the year without summer weren't limited to a few strange months. The ordeal didn't end in September or with the coming of fall. It was still going on long after that. As we'll see in many places, observers thought the following year, 1817, was even worse than 1816. Clearly the effect of Tambora on the atmosphere hadn't worn off, not even close. Indeed, many people, especially in New England, endured the bitterly cold winter of 1816 and 1817, and, facing another cold, wet, and miserable spring, they wondered if perhaps they were locked in an eternal winter, if what happened in 1816 was sort of a new normal. So there's still a lot of ground to cover in this, the third and final installment of this miniseries, as we explore the long, chilly tale of the year without summer, part three. Good evening. I would like to make one brief announcement before getting into the substance of tonight's show. I am finally joining the modern world of podcasting, and I am planning to institute an ad-free feed of this show on my Patreon account. It's not up yet, but it is coming. Several of my fellow podcasters, including Nathaniel Lloyd of Historical Blindness, do ad-free feeds for their Patreon supporters, and as a listener, I like it so much that I decided there's no reason why my most dedicated fans shouldn't have an ad-free feed. In fact, I'm sorry I haven't done it up until now. Hope you can forgive me, Patreon supporters. Anyway, I'll let you know where to find me on Patreon at the end of tonight's show. We've spent a lot of time in this series in New England and the American Northeast. This is in part because some of the most dramatic effects of the year without summer manifested themselves in those parts of the country. And it also has to do with the sources I used to compile these episodes, which come largely from archives in New England and are thus New England-centric. 
but I thought it might be interesting to focus on how the anomalies of that strange year affected places outside the Northeast, at least for a little while. Thanks to a newspaper, the Richmond Inquirer, we have an excellent record of the season in Virginia, and it was no less strange there than elsewhere. Like in New England, the weather in Virginia in 1816 was marked by its erratic nature. Temperatures fluctuated between heat waves and cool spells throughout the summer months. The Richmond Inquirer, like most papers of early America, ran considerable news regarding agriculture. Here is an article that ran on August 14, 1816. Quote, Hay, the first crop uncommonly short, but well got in and of good quality. It may be set down in general at about two-thirds in bulk of a common crop. Wheat and rye, these grains have turned out much better than the early part of the season promised. Many fields of the former, early sown, were greatly injured, and some almost destroyed by the fly. Upon both the drought and cold in the spring had a very discouraging effect, but ultimately the season proved auspicious. Flax and oats, both very fine, and the former promising a great yield. Indian corn. This important article in our agricultural concerns has suffered from the early drought, cold, and worms. Some fields look well, but the crops in general will probably be quite short, unless a very speedy and favorable turn in the season takes place. More warm weather is needed for Indian corn. Potatoes. The early plantings have come in well, and the latter have the prospect of a good crop. Large quantities are said to have been planted. End quote. Virginia, like New England in the Mid-Atlantic, was struck by frosts late in the summer. In Norfolk, Virginia, the local paper reported frosts on August 20th and 21st, and again on the 27th and 28th. The article is titled Gloomy Prospects, meaning the prospects for the harvest. But in the article there is this, quote, These frosty nights are preceded by uncommonly serene and beautiful evenings. On these occasions, the azure tints of the western sky and the last golden jets of the departing sun, together with the rich accidents of a veregiated mountainous region, are eminently calculated to delight the eye of both the painter and the poet. But the effect which follows is too deplorably felt by an industrious and valuable population not to be deeply lamented. End quote. This is a fascinating reference to brilliant sunsets. As I discussed earlier in the series, spectacular sunsets were seen all over the world in the aftermath of the Tambora eruption, thanks to the light-scattering properties of the volcanic dust suspended in the atmosphere. On September 28, 1816, the Richmond Inquirer ran this small article, quote, It has already been observed, as an extraordinary phenomenon in our climate, that there has been a frost for every month during this year. The month of September has not escaped. The Benin, the tenderest of all plants, was nipped a fortnight ago, and exhibits distinctly the marks of the visitation. End quote. On October 12th, this ran, quote, We lament to hear from the interior of the severe damages sustained by the late unseasonable frosts. In the opinion of some farmers, a great part of the corn not out of the milk has been cut off, and in many places they were cutting it up to preserve what was left. End quote. Sixty-three miles to the northwest of Richmond, in Albemarle County, one farmer was having a rough time of it with his crops that year. Thomas Jefferson retired seven years now for the presidency. We talked about his retirement in episode six. He wrote this in a letter to his friend Albert Gallatin, who was then U.S. Minister to France. The letter is dated September 8, 1816. Quote, We have had the most extraordinary year of drought and cold ever known in the history of America, 
In June, instead of three and three quarters inch, our average rain for that month, we had only one third of an inch in August. Instead of nine and one sixth inch, our average, we had only eight eight tenths of an inch. And it still continues. The summer, too, has been as cold as a moderate winter. In every state north of this, there has been frost in every month of the year. In this state, we have had none in June and July, but those of August killed much corn over the mountains. The crop of corn through the Atlantic states will probably be less than one-third of an ordinary one, that of tobacco still less and of mean quality. The crop of wheat was middling in quantity but excellent in quality, but every species of bread grain taken together will not be sufficient for the subsistence of the inhabitants. And the exportation of flour, already begun by the indebted and the improvident, to whatsoever degree it may be carried, will be exactly so much taken from the mouths of our own citizens. My anxieties on this subject are the greater, because I remember the deaths which the drought of 1755 in Virginia produced from the want of food. End quote. In searching records from Virginia and other southern states, I could not find, though I very much wanted to find, some accounts of the year without summer from the point of view of slaves. Lurking behind these farmers' reports and the speculations on the crops and the harvest, at least on many large plantations like Jefferson's, the work was done by enslaved peoples. But the voices of slaves, which have traditionally been pretty hard to hear in American history until recent decades, did not generally make it into the kinds of sources where people were talking about the weather that strange year. So how slaves in the plantation south may have experienced this event is a blind spot in our historical understanding. The strange summer with its chills and frosts gradually gave way to fall, and eventually fall lapsed into winter. Many people were still talking about what had happened over the course of the previous year. On December 14, 1816, a newspaper from Petersburg, Virginia, later one of the major battlefields of the Civil War, produced a lengthy article entitled On the Cold of the Late Summer. I won't read it all to you because it's very long, but the author, anonymous as many editorial writers were, got deep into the weeds on the scientific causes of the phenomenon, at least as it was understood in 1816. It's a pretty illuminating look into how lay people understood science and the environment in the second decade. And it was a fascinating attempt to synthesize what had happened, to make sense of it, and to reduce it to something knowable in the world as it existed. Here are some excerpts. On the cold of the late summer. Few phenomena have occurred more difficult to be explained than the long period of cold weather which the habitable world has experienced in the present year. Several writers in the public papers suppose that this season is out of the ordinary course of things, because, they say, the climate of Europe, and consequently the American climate, has grown warmer than it formerly was on account of the woods being cleared away, the morasses dried up, and the sun acting with more power. We know of no greater agent in affecting the general temperature of the air than the internal heat of the earth itself. Were the sun annihilated, the heat would still remain. That this heat is derived from a very different source than the sun is a fact which innumerable experiments made in various parts of the world have long established. It is calculated that upon an average over the globe, this internal heat has diminished 5 degrees of Fahrenheit in the last thousand years. But the long period of cold weather which we have experienced during the past summer appears to us to have been caused more by the absence of the usual circulation of the electrical fluid than either a deficiency in the heat of the sun or of that of which we receive from the internal heat of the earth. End quote. 
Just to unpack this a little bit, the writer was referring to a theory popular in the early 19th century that the Earth is surrounded by a sort of electrical fluid, and that disturbances in the fluid cause both weather manifestations and seismic activity. It's a bizarre theory and has no basis in science as we now understand it. The electrical fluid they were talking about is not congruous to the Earth's electromagnetic field, in case you were wondering, but it was a commonly held idea. According to this notion, a disturbance in the fluid, if it occurred above ground, might manifest itself as a thunderstorm or a lightning strike. If the same disturbance in the fluid happened below ground, it might manifest itself as an earthquake. The article goes on to talk about the various earthquakes around the world in the previous few years, suggesting that they might be linked to the year without summer anomalies. And there were some significant tremors in the first half of the second decade. Most notably a very large quake in Caracas, Venezuela in 1812, and the famous New Madrid earthquake of Missouri Territory. Actually a series of quakes that began at the end of 1811, and were so powerful that they briefly changed the direction of the Mississippi River. In the absence of understanding of volcanic climate change, these were the kind of explanations bandied about for the year without summer anomalies. Let's return up north to Worcester, Massachusetts, and the diary of Isaiah Thomas, the former printer and newspaper publisher now retired, and founder in 1812 of the American Antiquarian Society, in whose reading room I browsed his diary, the actual thing, not a copy. Thomas wrote his diary in the interleaved pages of his own almanac, the one printed under his name, and his chronicle of the summer, fall, and winter is an interesting testament to the severity of the season. On the page facing the printed almanac write-up for August 1816, Thomas wrote in his tiny little handwriting this, quote, This summer the weather has been the most extraordinary that I can remember, a frost every month since last autumn, but few warm days this summer, no month but what in several days of it a fire has been very agreeable. The nights generally very cool, three times frost in August which in many places cut off the Indian corn and the potatoes. The season has been remarkably dry in the United States generally, and in many parts of Europe, and has the cold also. Crops of hay very short, but the crops of English grain have been very good, several times frost in September as well as all months of the summer." End quote. On the page facing the printed almanac entry for September, Thomas wrote, Twelfth, rain, very cold for the season, fires in parlors, fur coats and cloaks worn, Bible Society met in Worcester. End quote. The strange erratic nature of the weather continued into the winter. December was apparently extraordinarily warm. On Christmas Eve, December 24th, Thomas noted the temperature was 60 degrees in a room with no fire and 64 degrees outside. Then, in January and particularly February 1817, came the cruelest cold snap that anybody in New England had ever experienced and which all of them would remember vividly for the rest of their lives. This was the cold snap that exceeded the infamous Cold Friday, January 19, 1810, which was the subject of episode 24 of this podcast. On Valentine's Day, February 14, 1817, Thomas wrote this entry in tiny, feeble handwriting. The ink in this entry's blotchy. It was so cold that it was thickening, almost freezing. The entry reads thus. 14th, fair, very cold, wind north, thermometer in the small south room at half past seven o'clock this morning, 14 above zero, 
Outside, stood at zero. Wind at northwest grew exceedingly boisterous. Coldest night this season, and for twenty years past. End quote. The anonymous diary I quoted in the last episode, obviously from Boston, a parishioner of the Hollis Street Church, was also keeping a diary at the same time. He or she wrote that February 5th was very cold, the 9th more moderate, and the 14th, Friday, was extremely cold with high winds, several degrees colder than the cold Friday of 1810. Many people suffered much, Anonymous wrote, and some lost their lives. A young woman named Susan Heath of Brookline, Massachusetts, wrote, Friday the 14th, insufferable cold. Distressing weather indeed for poor people. When we can barely keep comfortable what destitute people must suffer. The weather was a few degrees colder than the cold Friday so long celebrated as an extraordinary day. The men used every precaution to keep from freezing, like tying up ears, heads, etc. We finding it impossible to make the sitting room at all comfortable, deserted it for Ma's chamber. Saturday the 15th. The weather even colder in the morning than the day before, but moderated a little before night. We were a little apprehensive we must fast till noon, for the coffee threatened to become ice before we could conveniently swallow it. We repaired again to Ma's chamber as the only comfortable place in the house. It wasn't just New England. January and February 1817 were brutally cold a winter like none had ever seen, or would ever see again. A famous incident reported in a letter from Greensburg, Pennsylvania, dated January 25, 1817, talks of a stagecoach driver who, in the midst of the brutal cold snap, froze to death in his seat. His passengers, barely warmer than he was, didn't notice for several miles. I found this incident reported in a scattering of papers around the time. Interestingly, it's mentioned in the memoir of Estwick Evans, the man in the buffalo fur suit who I profiled in episode 25, though he says the incident occurred on the stage between Albany, New York, and Bennington, Vermont. But his account also includes the detail of his passengers not noticing it for several miles. It could have happened more than once. Driving a stagecoach in such weather must have been pretty hazardous. The sources I consulted about the winter following the year without summer are virtually unanimous, regardless of location. It was absolutely unprecedented. One telling account came from the travel journal of a missionary, Reverend C.I. Latrobe, who was touring in South Africa. On August 1st, 1816, keep in mind the seasons are reversed in the Southern Hemisphere, so this was the Southern Hemisphere's first winter after the peak of the Tambora effect, he wrote this, quote, it had frozen very hard last night, and the ice was in some places nearly an inch thick. The air, however, was perfectly clear, and the sun shone warm. As I was making a sketch of the rocks behind the stables, Sister Schmidt's schoolgirls came toward me, one carrying a plate with a piece of ice in it, fast melting in the sun. They asked me whether the water flowing from the ice might be drunk with safety, as they thought it was poisonous. I gave them some information on the subject, and when I described the quantity and thickness of ice in the northern regions, and told them of the immense ice mountains and fields floating in the ocean, I perceived by their astonished looks that had they not thought one of their teachers incapable of falsehood or exaggeration, they would have suspected me of sporting with their credulity. End quote. To those who lived through it, the strange cold summer and the brutal winter that followed were a continual assault by the climate. One curious piece of evidence I found, again in the diary of Isaiah Thomas, 
testifies to the fact that by the next spring, 1817, things hadn't gotten much better. Thomas records that it snowed in Worcester, Massachusetts on May 27, 1817, only ten days earlier in the year than the New England snowstorm of June 1816 had occurred, the event that, probably more than any other, marked the year without summer in American popular consciousness. Though it didn't stick the same way, 1816 was also, to a significant degree, a year without summer. The year without summer had a profound effect on a very interesting and very strange man from Scotland. His name was George Mackenzie, and the subject of the weather and particularly the wind defined his life's work. In 1818, Mackenzie published a book called The System of the Weather of the British Isles, revised in 1821. When I first encountered this book in the archives of the Huntington Library in California, I had no idea that by opening it, I was beginning my descent into the mind of a madman. Let's start at the beginning. Mackenzie was born in 1777 in Sutherland, Scotland, but eventually settled in as a farmer at a place called Cider Hall, near Dornoch. He was involved in some sort of lawsuit with a landowner and won 500 pounds in court, which was a princely sum at the beginning of the 19th century. He enlisted in the militia and rose to the rank of captain of the Caithness Volunteers and, during the, the Napoleonic Wars, lieutenant of the Royal Perth Militia. He never married and had no children. He was rumored to sleep only two hours a night. I found a reference to him being seen often in the town of Perth, where he eventually lived, dressed in an old coat and green-tinted sunglasses. Mackenzie was keenly interested in the weather. In 1802, November 1st, 1802 to be exact, he began taking down systematic daily weather records, noting temperature, wind speed and direction, and precipitation kept his notations in a little book which he was never without. The idea, inevitably, was to crunch all the data and see if he could discern some sort of pattern in the weather which might enable him to predict it. The day on which he started this project, November 1st, 1802, is significant because of a coincidence of cosmic proportions. On that same day, that exact same day, November 1st, 1802, across the Atlantic, in Virginia, Thomas Jefferson began doing exactly the same thing keeping systematic daily records and recording them in a book. For 14 years, Mackenzie went around checking his thermometers and rain gauges, and then staring intently at his data looking for patterns. He doesn't seem to have had much luck with it at first. Of this period, Mackenzie writes, quote, After a few years, slight attempts were made to find out some of the rules, but without much success, and it appeared evident that many years must pass before much could be accomplished on this head. End quote. You'll have to forgive George Mackenzie's pompous writing style. He always refers to himself in the third person, usually as journalist. So anyway, 14 years, he doesn't have much to show for it. Then came the year without summer, and this changed everything. At last, however, Mackenzie wrote, summer 1816 came, and though with much within the period described, its character was such that journalists could not resist making an attempt to find out the cause of such severe weather changes concluding that undoubtedly such did exist, end quote. During an intensive period of work, mostly in 1817, perhaps fueled by alcohol, perhaps not, Mackenzie began to divine his, quote, system of the winds. 
and is pretty convoluted, but strangely fascinating. I confess I don't understand it all, partly because of his weird writing style, and partly because, well, to be honest, it's virtually incoherent. I'm Not Alone, a scientific magazine that reviewed Mackenzie's book in 1818, had a lot of questions, too. But there are some things about his system that he does make clear. One of them is that he says the world's patterns of weather flow in a repetitive cycle that's 54 years long. This was the take-home point of his system, and it was why Mackenzie isn't remembered as one of the giants of climatology, but we'll return to the 54 years business in a moment. Basically what he did was to classify each day according to the direction of its winds. If the wind blew from the east all day, it was a day of east wind. If the wind blew from the west, it was a day of west wind. If the wind changed, it was a variable day. Mackenzie tells us that in the winter of 1816 and 1817, there were 21 days of east wind, 123 days of west wind, and 24 days of variable wind. He would also count precipitation in a similar way. If it rained less than three hours in a day, it would be a short rain. Between three and seven hours, moderate. More than seven hours, heavy. He then calculated what he considered to be an average, a baseline, of windy days and rainy days, and he measured each successive season against this baseline. If there was more east wind in a season than the average said there should have been, Mackenzie called it an excess east. If there was less, it would be a deficiency east. If there was too much rain, it would be a wet, that's a noun, and conversely, if too little, the season would be a dry. There were also storms. He used that word in a different way than most people do. A storm could go on for years. Apparently, it's a long succession of a deficiency or an excess or, I don't know, too much of something. Don't ask me how all this works and how we know that the numbers he came up with really are statistical averages of the weather. I don't know. I also don't understand why Mackenzie says that wherever you are in the world doesn't matter, that the cycle and the averages are always the same over time. He does say that, but how he arrived at that conclusion, I don't have a clue. But once Mackenzie gets going, there's no stopping him. Take this passage, for example, quote, When there are two seasons together, either winter or summer, something considerably under average, the succeeding is average, and the season following, which is the fourth respectively, is very wet, and the next, or the fifth, is very dry, but not always an extreme dry, for an extreme dry is only to be expected when the extreme wet is suddenly brought about. See winters 1803-4 and 1804-5. This rule is one which occupies a long period and is very remarkable. See summers 1808, 9, 10, 11, and 12, and winters 1815, 16, 1617, 1718, 1819, and 1920. Got that? Or how about this? He's talking about the summer of 1812 in Edinburgh. The temperature was one degree lower than last summer and only one degree higher than the ever-memorable 1816 but the place of observation of the present season is full two degrees cooler than that on which the other has been observed, Perth, especially in winter. Consequently, summer 1816 in Edinburgh would give 49 degrees as the temperature. These seasons resemble each other in many respects, but the quantity of rain being greatly less on the present made every difference in the world. This dry, cold summer of the second of a triple deficiency east comes round upon the winter of the second of a triple excess east on the year 1819-20, in a mild, dry season. Here's what he said about the year of 1816 itself. Quote, Nothing like this season has appeared hitherto. Days rain above average and the quantity greatly under. The number of frosts unexampled and the deficiency of east without precedent. 
Calm's also out of all bounds, and the very character of the season frittered away like everything else. The frosts and snows extended to May and continually alternating with rain, especially in the spring, and particularly in March, destroyed a great proportion of the wheat plants, which was the principal cause of the failure of that crop in 1816. The startling thing about Mackenzie's theory was his claim that the cycle of the winds could predict what future years would be like. Now, this only stretches so far. He took pains to say that the cycle is the same when we're talking about the averages of weather conditions, meaning year X would have the same number of wets, dries, easterly days, and westerly days as year X plus 54. It did not mean that the weather on January 1st, year X plus 54, would be exactly the same as the weather on January 1st, year X. Remember, weather and climate are different, though related things. But the predictability, the overall predictability, of the weather and the winds from one year to the next was the take-home point that Mackenzie obviously wanted you to remember. This is what he writes on the last page of his book, after 224 pages of weather averages, calculations, and the supposed proof of his system, most of which was like the quotes I just read you. Thus is submitted to the public an important discovery, deduced from a laborious and even painful calculation but it should not and shall not be forgotten, that the pleasure attending the operation was such as can never be enjoyed by another individual from this subject. And the operation, however simple in itself, will not only distinguish Britain among nations, but it will also excite the admiration and gratitude of the rest of the world toward this favored country through all succeeding time. End quote. Mackenzie apparently meant this unironically, he really thought that he was going to go down in history as the greatest weather scientist of all time. There was just one problem. His system didn't have any, you know, proof. If the winds and the weather really do run on a 54-year cycle, and if a year as anomalous and strange as 1816 really is part of that cycle, then it would stand to reason that the year 1870, being 54 years after 1816, would be equally unusual and have similar weather. Mackenzie was dead by 1870, so he wasn't around to have to explain himself. But he also seems to have missed the obvious point, that the weather from 54 years prior, the year 1762, must also have been similar. Only it wasn't. There weren't as many people out there taking weather and wind measurements in 1762 as there were half a century later, but nothing from the weather records seems to indicate that there was anything unusual at all about the weather in that year and Mackenzie, in fact, never once went back into historical records to try to prove his claim of weather rising and falling in 54-year cycles. Mackenzie basically made a career out of his cycle of the winds. In 1830, he published another book on it, titled Manual of the Weather for the Year 1830. That book was reviewed in the Dublin Literary Gazette. Here is what the reviewer had to say. Quote, This is a very curious book but we are sorry to say that we do not altogether understand it. The authors of the opinion that the laws which regulate the weather are as uniform and steady in their operation as those which produce the alterations of day and night, or the flux and reflux of the tides. He conceives that he has discovered a 54-year cycle of the weather, which enables him to predict its state with accuracy for any given month in any given future year. As his observations purport to apply in a general manner to the British Isles, there appears to us a great difficulty on the very threshold of the system, 
namely that quite different sorts of weather are experienced in different places at the same time. That a great deal of minute and scientific attention has been paid to the phenomenon of the atmosphere by the author of this little work we cannot for a moment doubt, but we rather apprehend that he has not been so successful in the practical results, or at least in developing them to others, as he seems to anticipate. End quote. Though he was never proven right about the system of winds, Mackenzie remained obsessed with it for the rest of his life. He was still writing and publishing on it in 1843. He credited the year without summer as the eureka moment in his scientific, or shall we say pseudo-scientific, work. In later years, he was remembered as a doddering old sort. He died in Perth, Scotland, in 1856. The bad weather and stunted harvest of the year without summer had a cascading effect throughout the world, particularly on food supplies. In the United States, Native Americans were starving on the frontier, as the quote that opened this episode shows. Many others on hard-scrabble farms had a very lean and hungry year. In Europe, where rains and floods in 1816 wiped out grain harvests, the situation was much worse. It was not just that there wasn't food, enough grain and flour to feed the countryside. Switzerland and the Rhine Valley were especially hard hit. What food there was was insubstantial, lacking in any nutritional value. One report from France from 1817 had it that you couldn't cut a loaf of bread made from the wheat harvested in the year without summer. It would just stick to the knife. A diary has survived from a remarkable man named William Lodge Kidd, a doctor, born in Ireland, who apparently spent the first part of the second decade in the British Navy for his diary up to 1814 tells the story of his life aboard various ships. At some point after that, he went home to his family's farm in County Armagh, Ireland. Here's what he wrote on April 20th, 1817. Quote, For the last three weeks we have scarcely had one drop of rain. This has been in one respect very favorable to the putting in of the crop, but on the other hand the land is extremely hard and lumpy, requiring to be broken down by mallets and never were the horses in the country less fit for labor, many of them dying, apparently from malnutrition. Even in the hands of those who have had food enough to give them, but it would appear that there has not been nutriment sufficient in it to support the lives of the animals, as several of them are dropping down in the plow, and some even in the stable. Many of them are also covered with vermin. Among the human race, too bad a fever at present exists of a low typhoid kind, which proves fatal to great numbers, end quote. The misery in Ireland dragged on through the spring. On June 5, 1817, Kidd wrote this, quote, In the county Clare there has been a good deal of rioting among the lower classes owing to the lack of provisions. They have attacked and forced several stores in Imadog. About Kerry, several cows have been killed at night and the carcasses carried away, and the lame practice has commenced there. The distress of all classes appear to be extremely great and some cases of absolute starvation appear to have occurred. New potatoes have been selling in the Dublin markets for eight days past at one pound, but it will be two months before they will be in a quantity sufficient to lower the prices in the markets. Meal is 45 pence, potatoes 14 pence. End quote. A week later, the rains finally came. Kidd noted that prospects suddenly looked better, but there was still a long road ahead. Keep in mind that, due principally to land use and cultivation patterns imposed on Ireland by the British, the difference for the average Irish family between doing well, meaning you at least have something to eat, and abject starvation was a very short distance. 
This is why, three decades later, the potato blight could trigger famine on a vast scale. Ireland's food system was extraordinarily fragile. The effects of the year without summer were a dress rehearsal for the Great Famine of the 1840s. By 1818, things were slowly returning to normal. The harvest that year were much better in many parts of the world, including New England and Ireland. And there is evidence of moderate warming, as the effects of Tambora and Mountain X were beginning to dissipate. Take this report, which is from a letter written in Copenhagen, and ultimately published in the Naval Chronicle for 1818, the official journal of the British Royal Navy. Quote, 450 square miles of ice has recently detached itself from the eastern coast of Greenland and the neighboring regions of the Pole. It was this mass which, during 400 years, had rendered that province at first difficult of access, and afterwards inaccessible so as even to cause its existence to be doubted. Since 1786, the report of the whalers have invariably referred to some changes more or less considerable in the seas of the North Pole. But at the present time, so much has detached itself, and such extensive canals are open amidst what remains, that they can penetrate without obstruction as far as the 83rd degree. All of the seas of the North abound with these floating masses which are driven to more temperate climates. This breaking up of the polar ice coincides with the continual tempests from the southeast, accompanied with heats, rains, storms, and a very electrical state of the atmosphere, circumstances which during three years have caused us to experience in Denmark hot winters and cold, humid summers. On the 25th of May, 1818, there fell at Copenhagen five showers of hail, to each of which succeeded a dead calm. End quote. The year without summer was largely over. It becomes harder to find reports of cold snaps or weather anomalies in 1819 and 1820 that were as clearly out of the ordinary, or perceived as such, as those of 1816 and 1817. As I stated in the first episode of this miniseries, and repeated various other times in the course of this podcast, what went down in folklore as the year without summer was really a decade of below-normal temperatures and weather anomalies, ten years of winter, colloquially speaking, from 1809 to 1819, though that admittedly dramatic characterization, it was the title of my dissertation for the record, does exaggerate and oversimplify what happened. And so we're back to where we started, the year without summer as a condition of memory, part of the collective environmental past of the people who lived through it. I started the first episode in this miniseries with a quote from Chauncey Jerome, a clockmaker from New England, who was remembering the events in 1860. 44 years after they happened. Sarah Emery, also quoted in this series, was looking back from 1879. She died in that year, age 92. She did not quite live to see the effects of the eruption of Krakatau, better known as Krakatoa. On August 26, 1883, the volcano with that name, located on a small island in the Sunda Strait in what's now Indonesia, exploded in another catastrophic eruption. To put it in perspective, Krakatoa's eruption, which was 6 on the Volcanic Explosivity Index, was about 10% of the power and magnitude of the Tambora eruption in 1815. We talk about Krakatoa as if it was nothing, just a trifle, but it was a big deal. Over 36,000 people were killed as a result of the eruption. That number is almost certainly underestimated. Human skeletons were seen floating on pumice rafts bobbing around at the Indian Ocean for more than a year after the disaster. It was a much smaller tragedy than Tambora, but still a tragedy, still incredibly powerful. 
global cooling did occur after Krakatoa. For about a year, average temperatures in the Northern Hemisphere fell by about 1.2 degrees Celsius. There were brilliant sunsets, just as there had been in 1816, but there was no year without summer. Krakatoa just wasn't powerful enough. But Krakatoa is much more well-known than Tambora, and it had a much bigger effect, especially on scientific understanding of volcanoes and volcanic climate change. The reason is because Krakatoa happened in a different era. In 1883, there were steamships and telegraphs, geologists had seismographs, and meteorologists had networks of weather stations, taking consistent point source data organized in systematic fashion. Much different than George Mackenzie puttering around out there in his frock coat and green glasses, or even Jefferson squinting at barometers and rain gauges in the gardens of Monticello nearly 70 years earlier. There was also a worldwide news media that moved much faster in 1883 than in 1815. As you'll recall, it took 10 months for the news of the Tambora eruption to appear in a newspaper in the United States. The Krakatoa cataclysm was splashed on the world's front pages the next day. Science was also very different. By the late 19th century, science had begun to become institutionalized and specialized. There was a such thing as a professional scientist, somebody who made their primary living through scientific pursuits. That occupation didn't really exist in 1815, when scientists were mostly enthusiastic amateurs. Krakatoa and his effects greatly interested scientists beginning in the 1880s. One of them was William Jackson Humphreys, who in 1913 was the first scientist to write in English about the link between volcanic eruptions and temporary global cooling, though researchers in Germany had been working on that theory since at least 1901. This closed the circle, intellectually speaking, between the suppositions that Benjamin Franklin made in 1783, when a volcano in Iceland, I can't pronounce its name, preceded an unusually cold winter. He had no proof then. Krakatoa provided the proof. Humphreys' conclusions on volcanic climate change were a hard sell to the scientific community at first, but eventually it was accepted. The theory was proven right again when a slight, very slight, dip in global temperatures or more accurately a slight deceleration in the rate of global warming, occurred after the eruption of Pinatubo in 1991. I explained in part one of this miniseries why volcanic cooling isn't the antidote to man-made global warming, caused principally by industrial processes and the burning of fossil fuels. There's a sort of irony that the story of the year without summer ultimately melds with what you might characterize as its opposite, an age defined by the warming of the climate and all the catastrophes that have occurred and will continue to occur as a result. Tambora was purely a natural disaster. No human caused it. No human could have stopped it. But we humans have caused global warming, and we can stop it, though the longer we wait, the longer we pretend as if we have decades instead of years, the more satisfied we are with slow and incremental progress the more justifications we tell ourselves about how climate change won't be so bad, or it's not realistic to fix it, or it'll cost too much, the longer we entertain those illusions, and they are illusions, the harder it will be to stop. So in the final analysis, the story of the year without summer, the last episode of purely natural climate change that has occurred in human history, that story is not yet over. The snows have melted, the crops grown back, the people whose voices you heard in this story, Isaiah Thomas, Sarah Anna Emery, Aaron White, Captain Von Kotzenbu, William Lodge Kidd, 
they died long, long ago. But what we make of this event, how we construct it in our historical understanding, will always and forever be linked to the climate change catastrophe that we're living through right now. This is why it's worth remembering. If you like this podcast, please do me a favor, leave a star rating and a review on iTunes or Google Play. If you have social media or talk to other history buffs, give Second Decade a mention. I'd love for you to join my Patreon, that's patreon.com slash seanmunger. That's also where the ad-free feed is eventually going to be. It's not up now, but it will be. I'm also on Instagram, and I have an email list, Meet Someone From History, where every Friday you can read a profile of someone from the past who has a quality who can help us in the present. You can go to my website, seanmunger.com, to join. I have a book out. It's called The Warmest Tide, How Climate Change is Changing History. You can find it on Amazon. It's an ebook, paperback, and audiobook format. My historical sources for this episode are too numerous to mention. As with the other episodes in this miniseries, I used mostly newspaper and diary entries. I got access to many of them through three archives that I would like to thank. The Huntington Library of San Marino, California, the Massachusetts Historical Society in Boston, and the American Antiquarian Society in Worcester, Massachusetts, all of whom supported my academic research into the second decade as I was working toward my degrees. Music Credits Our theme music for this podcast is called The Long Road Ahead by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com used under Creative Commons 3.0 license. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.